Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Portfolio diversification is an important topic for all investors. As for many things, it's a bit different for venture capital investors. So today we dig into how it works and some of the whys. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today is a little bit different, and it's kind of a little bit ex- experiment for us. I am going to riff on the topic of diversification. I'm going to draw on what some of our previous guests have said to give some insights on some of the things that I've picked up. The idea is that there's a more intensive focus on the topic that we may get from a single guest. As I said, this is an experiment, and as with all experiments, we'd appreciate a little bit of feedback. If you like this, if you don't like this, and we'll see uh, whether we repeat it in the future. So diversification has been described as kind of the free lunch for investment. Improves the risk return profiles. Of course, it's not quite a free lunch, as more investments usually means a bit more work. Um, In EIS, that means more paperwork or more research into actually picking your investments. For investors who start off as under-diversified, which is a lot of people in venture capital, it's still worth the effort of actually improving your diversification uh, because you'll actually get a better risk-return profile. So when we talk about diversification, we often talk about it in two different levels. The first is at the asset cast level. So for EIS and VCT investors, about how much they should be investing in venture capital as part of the total assets. I wrote a white paper on this back in autumn 2021, and I spoke about it in detail in episode 39 of the podcast. So I'm not really going to go into detail on that again. But the bottom line was that even without tax release, most investors should have some exposure to venture capital. For average risk investors, that is likely to be a proportion in the mid-teens. For high-risk investments, you know, it's maybe high teens. For low-risk investments, maybe you, you get it down below to single digits. But there's very few investors for whom some exposure to venture capital is not appropriate. What I didn't address in the paper or the podcast was the next step in diversification, which is once you've got your asset allocation and ha- you know how much you're going to invest in venture capital, how do you diversify that portfolio properly? So basically, you want to make sure you have a proper spread of investments within the venture capital portfolio. This is more one aspect. So there's sort of different ways that we can look at this, which we'll touch on. So the first of which I want to look at is the number of investments. So how many investments is appropriate? Because I get some comments from IFAs who say, oh, yes, well, I put this money into venture capital and half of them failed and you, and, and, and the money sort of went away. And, and you discover they've only actually put... 10 investments in or, or five investments. And of course, you know, when three fail, uh, people get upset. And, and when you only got five investments, that's actually not that unlikely. So in thinking about number of investments, first people that come to mind is Syndicate Room, who have probably done some of the best work on this in the EIS market. So here's Tom Burton from episode 18, outlining how the issue is perceived in the market and some of their thoughts. I, I think in the broader financial markets, it's well understood. And you see that with the success of ETFs, you know, tracker funds and yeah, um, even VCT, yeah, VCTs and, and a typical venture capital fund. But in, in this angel market, in this environment where people get a bit of a thrill, if you will, like there's risk involved in it, but you could be on to 
the next Facebook or the next, you know, whatever superstar company, you get people who start to think that they can beat the market and that, oh, they, they have some sort of asymmetric information, which means they can pick that one company that's going to do really well. Unfortunately, that's not the case. They, they can't do it. So really, they'd be better off going into a fund or, or taking it upon themselves to create a large portfolio. With, with our Fund 28, so the, the evolution of the thinking on diversification, going back to the platform, we started this academy, academy and we harped on about diversification, diversification. And when we were young, people, and they still talk about it, in a portfolio of 10, an angel can expect six to go bust, mm-hmm. six or seven to go bust, one or two to kind of pay back maybe a little bit more than what you invested in it, and one home run. Mm-hmm. And you kind of get that drilled into you. I don't know that many angels that actually have a portfolio of just 10. That number is not only do 10. That number is out of 10. <laughs> this is what you're likely you might get. But really, you have to go much beyond that 10 to start getting the diversification you need and the chance of getting one really good success. So mm-hmm. we went from that kind of you know do 10, like all the angels say, to fund 28. Um, and 28 is a, a key number because at that stage, in theory, you have enough spread to get one really true home run. We had this discussion about statistics. And yeah. while I, I think if I'm being nitpicky as someone who's got background in statistics, they were a bit flaky in terms of that exact number. The principle is really pretty good. Yeah. And, and you're right. Like the numbers themselves are contestable, but it's more applied to on public markets and then private markets. Someone, mm-hmm. I forget who it was, then applied it to private markets and tried to say, look, it, it stacks up here where, you know, 28 is, you know, you want to get at least 28 and go above that. But not we were unhappy with that number. What we wanted to do was do our own data, our own research. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've spent the last kind of two years, if you will, getting data out of companies' house. So companies house have an API mm-hmm. um, and, and we've also triaged or uh, referenced uh, this data with Bohurst, um, mm-hmm. which is, as you know, a good resource of, of data on private market companies. We took, I want to say all of the data out of companies house, but all of the private market data out of companies house for companies that had raised funding rounds, then pieced the market back together. We were able to go back to 2011, some data from 2010, but 2011 being where the data in Companies House is starts to become coherent and readable, but also um, structured in a similar way for each company. Mm-hmm. And then we started to rebuild this market. And then we tracked that market over time using the data again from Companies House and updating it as we went. And, and we started to see a few patterns um, in that data. And, and one of them was around this concept of diversification and where true diversification in the UK startup scale-up market lies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that number and what the fund is now based on is getting um, 50 investments, a minimum of 50 investments per 12-month cycle um, into the fund. And that's that's very specific to the stage at which we go in. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're coming in in kind of late seed. So companies raising 400K up to kind of smallish series a so about two and a half million at the upper end and applying this data to companies raising those amounts so while tom is talking about angels in particular the same issues actually apply to any investor in venture capital part of the issue lies in the skewness of returns as most investors know a proportion of investments will return little or nothing while a small proportion of winners will supply most of the profits so when we think about 
things like deciding with Angel's report or some of the US data, typical proportions of failures are, are, are a third or half. And this is, this is the thing that puts people off investing in venture capital. But of course, on average, the profits exceed that. The thing is, of course, because the profits come from smaller investments, you know, the more investment you have, the, the more that works, or the, or the more likely you are to have a super high winner. You know, if, if you, as a US venture capitalist, invested in Google or Facebook, that dictated your portfolio return. And the more you have in different investments, the more likely you are to have one of those. And this gives it a very different return profile from quote equities. So one description I often use is this. In a quote equity portfolio, we can do a little bit of mass, and there's some very nice little mass. And if you want to figure out what the benefit, you know, how to maximize your portfolio, the diversification benefits in your portfolio, then often, you know, if you've got equal weighted positions, then by the time you get to about 30 or 40 stocks, you've got the vast majority of your diversification benefit. Going from 20 to 30 or 20 to 40 gets you way more than going from 40 to 100, for example. So even funds that have 40 stocks in the portfolio actually can be pretty well diversified. Now, that kind of depends on the portfolio as well. And if portfolios are not equally weighted, then it doesn't quite work as well. But that's the basic thing for a quota equity portfolio. In venture capital, it feels a little bit different. So if you're expecting half the investments to fail, then already you're saying the diversification I get is only half the number that it otherwise would be. So if you want to get the same diversification you do in the quote equity portfolio, then you actually need double the number of investments to kind of get that diversification. So if you're saying, I get most of it with 40, then for venture capital, you're saying I actually kind of need 80 investments. So that's kind of a sort of conceptual story, which, which works quite well. Mathematically, I'm not quite sure if, it's, if, it's, if there's rigor, but it gives you a good idea. In practice, actually, you probably need a few more than that. When you look at Syndicate's Room's research, by the time you get to 90 investments, you have a 10% chance of losing capital over five years. And if you get up to 150 investments, you're kind of in the low single digits. That kind of makes it comparable with sort of quoted equities. If you think, what was the chance of you losing money over five years? You'd probably say, yeah, something in low single digits. You know, looking at historic records, over 10% would seem um, unreasonable. So an another data point uh, was a recent article in Institutional Investor on US data showed by the time you get to 500 deals, the volatility, the variation in returns in, in, in funds is kind of comparable with global equities. Same order of magnitude, so it's still a bit more. With only 15 deals in your portfolios, the volatility returns that you get is many, many times bigger. So that kind of suggests that what we want to, is to get huge, huge numbers of investments and way more than a lot of people are sort of pitching us, oh, yes, we get our diversified portfolio where you have 10 investments. And, and Tom, of course, alluded to that. Well, they've gone to 50. Actually, I suggest something even better or even, even more. So, so, what I, so when I speak to advisors, my rule of thumb when you have a, an investor that is new to venture capital, so making their first venture capital investments, is that the advisor should think about getting that investor to 100 different company investments as quickly as possible. And that's kind of a basic level diversification. How you do that depends on the kind of investor. 
And I'm going to digress for a moment into the relative merits of VCTs and EIS funds, because this is very relevant. So when I first looked at these, I thought all the investment advantages sat with VCTs. In particular, you're investing into a more diversified portfolio on day one than most EIS funds. Um, obviously, you do get one or two differences depending on which EIS fund, but in the vast majority of cases, VCTs portfolios are more diversified than EIS funds. And even on the tax side, while VCTs suggest a five-year holding time, rather than three, the minimum three that's required for EIS. In practice, liquidity for EIS and sorts of investments we're taking will take five to 10 years. So it's kind of longer than VCTs. So VCTs on that basis kind of seem like a slam dunk. Of course, when you start looking under the bonnet, it's actually a much more balanced decision. So the first thing that strikes me is VCTs have cash drag. While some VCTs minimize effective, others are running sort of 30%, which is um, a bit of a pain, especially when you're paying sort of 3% in expenses to manage that. So no one would pay 3% to manage cash. So that can be a meaningful drag for, for some VCTs. You've also got some sort of residual non-venture capital investments. Very small proportion trusts now, or venture capital trusts have these but there's some assets that kind of drags on your venture capital returns as well. The other thing that struck, struck me when I started looking at is diversification often isn't quite as good as you might think. So VCTs tend to run their winners. Now, don't get me wrong, that's a great thing because what you want to do is actually hold on to your winners. And in some ways, actually, they've got no choice because they can't actually sell out anyway. So what, what happens is the winners tend to become quite large proportions of the portfolio. So... You often see, and this is quite common in VCTs, where the top 10 positions actually are more than half the portfolio. So while there's a tail, some of these can have really small weights, particularly things that are struggling. So while often with a VCT, you might see things like they have 50 or 60 holdings, some of those are going to be so small that even if they get, say, the 10 times return, they're not really going to contribute very much to a, a, a portfolio as a whole. And a lot of seed investments of VCTs are actually there not to generate returns, but to give the VCTs a chance at, or a seat at the table for following investments so they can actually make them more meaningful, get a more meaningful exposure. So you've got this thing where the top 10 positions are often quite, quite a large proportion in VCTs, sometimes quite often more than half. And those, those companies, because they've been successful, probably have less, have less upside potential. We'll come back to that. Uh, later on. But the net result is that for, if you get the same, if you have a VIS fund and a VCT and they had the same underlying investment performance, we'd expect the EIS fund to perform better than a VCT. This leads to my suggested strategies for getting to at least 100 investments as fast as possible. So if you've got smaller investors, so these are going to be people who maybe got 10,000 a year or 20,000 a year to invest or something. They, they should be investing in two or three VCTs, possibly with a diversified EIS fund. And there's some EIS funds that do have um, sort of uh, 20 or 30 or, or as, as Tom alluded, 50 uh, investments. Not very many of them. You know, that, that will get them to this base level of 100 relatively quickly. Larger investors, so... By large, I might mean somebody with, say, 200,000 to invest. 
fund minimums are often sort of 10 or 20 grand or 25 grand. So that would allow someone with 200,000, say, could invest it, spread an investment across eight to 10 EIS funds, get to acquire relative diversification. And that as a portfolio will probably perform better than a portfolio of VCTs. Now, obviously, there's some penalties in that in terms of admin. Every, every You've got 100 investments, say, to get paperwork on rather than sort of a small number of VCTs. But in terms of the investment profile, that's what you get. I just want to mention a little side note here, which is something I don't emphasize a huge amount. But there's an interesting thing in uh, a syndicate room white paper, which is called sort of beating the dragons. And they did some simulation work. And what they came across was that the more investment you put in a portfolio, the better the return, uh, which is quite curious. Now, I, I can actually link this to something else that I've seen. So there's a guy called Jerry Newman, who writes, he's a quote, venture capitalist come academic in the States. And he's written stuff on sort of mathematics of venture capital a little bit. And one of the things he's pointed out that if venture capital assets follow power distribution, and particularly a power distribution with a certain parameter value, which he thinks they do, then actually, theoretically, that would give the same result. Now, so, so you have, we have this theory that the more venture capital investments you make, the better expected return, and some simulation of that practice. So I think there's a very good case for many people maximizing the sort of number of investments that they make. There, there is an exception to this, I think. And this exception is probably a lot of angels. So what I'm really talking about here is kind of passive capital. So someone who's just investing money in the fund and really sort of you want to forget. And, and really they're thinking about this sort of cliche about not putting their eggs, all their eggs in, into a single basket. Investors who are active in their venture companies, and this includes many angels, may prefer to put all their, may prefer their eggs in, in a much smaller number of baskets and watch them closely. And that's also a valid strategy. If you can influence the results, and if you feel like by influencing the results, you can generate positive value, that's a very reasonable thing to do. Clearly, it's very hard to do this for 100 plus investments. Not impossible, maybe, but you're going to be limited about what you can do. So if, if you're sort of doing that, then a smaller number might be more appropriate. Um, obviously, you're investing as part of an angel syndicate, then you know, the, the, there's, there's more people spread it around and, and maybe it's, you know, you should be looking at higher numbers. So once an investor reaches 100, or 100, they can start then start fine-tuning the exposure. At this point, you can start looking at maybe specialist SEIS or EIS funds, and these should probably be preferred for the better return prospects. Of course, there's still always going to be exceptions. For example, investors who maybe get stressed by things may prefer the sort of slight opacity of VCT where all they see is the total return, and they don't necessarily see individual investments that are failing. Of course, if you have 100 or 150 investments and investment fails, then that's going to affect you less than if you just have, say, 10 investments and one investment fails. So, so the improved diversification can alleviate that, but you know, there's, there's still going to be exceptions. So when we want to think about what we do after our 
sort of first sort of step in sort of getting to this 100 plus companies for diversification. We can think about diversification by three sort of factors. One is stage, one is sector, and one is time. So thinking about stage of development first, here's Sanjeev Gordon, who came to my podcast in episode 11, talking about different stages and sectors. So the key thing for me is first looking at where applicable, what tax structure is wrapped around those investments, because those underlying investments that you go into in the unquoted are exactly that, the underlying investments within a wrapper. The wrappers are your EIS. There you've got the whole kind of tax implications on the way in, internally on the way out. Same with VCTs. So that's the first is what wrapper am I overlaying on this? What's the most suitable for it? And then I'm starting to look at what stages are these businesses as well. So it's great saying, yes, they're unquoted. Um, but in unquoted, you've got anything from a man with an idea or a woman with an idea right up through to you can still have hundreds of employees within an organization and the companies are raising hundreds of millions for certain different rounds. So you've got to really understand the different business cycles or business stages um, within Unquoted. Even now, if you look at the market, there are many variations of what people call seed. It's it's a term that I think's changed over time. I think in the US, we've seen bigger, bigger investments at seed stage and, and, and across the spectrum. So I think sometimes Silicon Valley, what is now seed used to be series A because everything's just moved up at the scale. Exactly. And the thing is, is uh, so I spent some time uh, in Silicon Valley when I did my MBA and it's all the quantums that they're playing with, right? And I use playing very loosely, do not necessarily mean that. <laughs> it's very serious. But yeah. It is, it is. But in that they are, the, the ecosystem has been a lot better established because they've been going for over 25 years now in this type of space. And because of that, they've seen some really good exits. There's more money kind of going around the market in, and, and helping the ecosystem there. So where in the UK market, we would be a lot more apprehensive about a, a half a million investment into a company that to them in Silicon Valley is pocket change. And they would be taking a lot more of those kind of gambles um, on the companies because they're, they're talking about total investment pots of billions. We're talking hundreds of millions here. So that changes the level of what do we invest in at seed stage? Yeah, a recent guest described our, in, our industry as something of a cottage industry, whereas I think Silicon Valley is um, the industrial scale to some extent. Absolutely. No, that's a really good way of putting it. And it is absolutely that. The, um, there's so many different investment managers within this part within in the UK market, each one doing things very differently and in its own little kind of bubbles. But yeah, the, the seed stage to me, aside from the value, seed stage to me is getting an idea into the kind of MVP level where you've got something, you've got a, a minimum viable product. product. So, yes, sorry, I'm using jargon there. Um, <laughs> getting it to that point and working at the ideation stage. And then you've got the point of unquoted where you go post seed, but they're not quite ready for series A stage. And that's where they haven't met the metrics to be able to show commercialization, but they've got past the ideation phase. 
they need a financial runway to be able to build the processes and help commercialize. And is that kind of what you say is the gap between MVP and product market fit? Correct. Yes. Yes. Although you'd still want some traction on within the market at that point, you still want there to be a customer, some pilots, early stage revenue, potentially, depending on what type of sector you're investing in. But yeah, that's the, that's probably where it is aligned to. And then you're going into kind of series A and beyond where you've got um, you, you've started hitting commercial metrics and then you're scaling the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these are the different areas and different stages when you're thinking unquoted. And I've not even started discussing kind of different sectors and different technologies, because these are the other bits that you need to think about in terms of when you're building a portfolio, how concentrated is your portfolio diversification when you're talking about sector? Um, When you can talk about technology, well, yes, that's 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 a big area. Um, Technology can be working in different verticals. So there's a lot of different variables in the unquoted markets when you're looking at building a portfolio. And it's a matter of getting that right so that you have got some diversification across those different stages, different sectors and different technologies. So we have several stages, typically what we call pre-seed, which is mostly through SAIS, seed, to which EIS gives the most exposure, and series A, B, see sort of scale up investments, if you like, where VCTs are more dominant. Of course, as Sanji said, reality is a spectrum and these overlap significantly. As we alluded to earlier, VCTs are making more seed investments, partially to, although they're small in the portfolio as a whole, they give them access to future deal flow. EIS, there are plenty of EIS managers who also invest later on um, in series A and B. Sometimes it's followed on to, on to existing investments. Sometimes that their strategy is to make larger investments, particularly those that can successfully raise more money. There is some debate about the relative merits of each stage for investors and, and whether it's a good stage of investment. So perhaps some cast some insight into that. Uh, for starters, here's SFC's Stephen Page from episode 37 talking about pre-seed investments and the shortage of capitalist stage that was illustrated in a report that they sponsored. It's used in different ways by different people. The best way of describing SEIS uh, as the round, if you like, is the first uh, institutional or main investment into a company. So that can be angels, it can be funds like ours. It's really just after the friends and family round you know, which may or may not have taken place. But it's, I call it pre-seed, really, what we do at the SEIS level and seed at the EIS level. So it's the first round is SEIS and then second rounds and onwards become EIS, which is more like seed until you get up to Series A, which then takes over from there. Mm-hmm. So Series A is where it scale up. And, it and- really scales up. You, you sort of below a million, I would say, is seed, you know, and below... Probably 200, 250 is pre-seed. Yeah. And these sort of companies, they're developing the product or the government involved product that's trying to find product market fit. That's typically what they're doing, is it? Yeah. For me, what SEIS is all about is really getting the companies off the ground. And these companies that we invest in more often than not have very embryonic. They're very young. They're like little shoots that are coming out of the ground. Or to use the analogy, they're like 
little turtles that are trying to get to the water. You know, once they've been born, they're trying to get into the sea. So there's many of these, and we have to, you know, we're very careful on how we select which ones to invest in. But SEIS is all about giving them the chance to get to revenue, to get them to product market fit. They don't really have that at the pre-seed level. They more often than not don't have revenue, but some do. They more often than not have an MVP or a prototype. They have something like that. So it's um, they're not advanced at all. They're very young. They're normally six months old, sometimes three months, sometimes a year. And clearly this is an important part of, of sort of the VC environment or, or even the, the economic environment. What does your report show about the trends? What it showed on the pre-seed trends very much was a little bit worrying, to be honest. It showed that back in um, before SEIS, the number of investments made at this level were very small. You know, you were talking let's say 400 companies a year, something like that. And then when SEIS came out, you could see an escalation in the numbers of, of investments made quite significantly up to in 2018, over 2,000 companies received SEIS investment. 2019, though, it started, it dropped a bit. And 2020, it continued to drop. And the question is why? No one has an exact answer to that, but we think it's, it's probably a number of reasons. And it's to do with probably how SEIS is structured and, how the, and the amount of money available in SEIS. It's still not well known either. Mm -hmm. Still not, you know, 600,000 companies a year are formed, but I bet you 99% of them probably don't know what SEIS is. So it's not a well-known thing, which is a shame. It should be. It should be more well-known. And also, the rules and the limits associated with SEIS have not been changed since it was launched in 2012. So, you know, I think as part of the recommendations of this report, it's really to bring those, bring SEIS up to date and make some changes and uh, one or two tweaks to EIS. But EIS, generally speaking, is you know, is, is very good. SEIS has not kept pace with nearly 10 years of changes in the market, you know, and inflation and all the rest of it. So if there's a shortage of capital at the pre-seed stage, then it should be more attractive, right? Yeah. Not everyone would agree. For example, here's Paul Slentis in episode 42 discussing what he saw in the VC market when he was forming 24 Haymarket. I got involved in 24 Haymarket in 2014, early 2014, and the business had been around before my involvement for about two years. So even though I was, I'm, I'm one of the co-founders, um, you know, there was a, a prototype for 24 Haymarket before I got involved. And the, the reason that I got involved with 24 Haymarket and helped to build the business into what it is today is that I saw a couple of opportunities in the market. The first was that uh, in terms of how the venture capital ecosystem had evolved since I was involved, you know, sort of first got involved in that 10 years previously, was that a lot of the companies that were very successful in backing venture stage and startup companies in the 90s and 2000s had really navigated up 
was to really be growth equity investors deploying 10, 20, sometimes 30, 40 million you know, pounds of capital uh, at much, much later stages. And that sort of left a gap quartered around the sort of seed Series A, um, sometimes a Series B uh, phase at that stage as well. That not a lot of institutional players were going after relative to the demand from companies that are kind of breaking through. And there really were a lot of very interesting companies. I think if you have to look at, you know, say the Harvard MIT ecosystem in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the number of very interesting companies coming out there is arguably behind, you know, that of the sort of Oxford Cambridge, um, you know, ecosystem. But the the level of capital, you know, there is far ahead, you know, 10 to 15 years further ahead than, you know, what we have within the UK context. So there was there's clearly a, a market that was underserved. On the other side of the equation, there's something fascinating about, um, you know, what evolved in the high net worth market about 10 years ago. I think on the one hand, you had a, a generation of very successful, very connected, very experienced business people coming out of their full-time careers in the city as senior operators, whatever the case may be. And there wasn't really many vocational options available to them. I think many of these individuals probably had the dream of being non-executive directors on, on public company boards, but when they kind of got to that stage, found that the regulatory requirements uh, uh, and, and the scrutiny um, around being a public company director was 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 not really something that they, they, they wanted to get involved with. And there wasn't really a lot that once you get to that stage in life, late 50s, 60s, and you still want to remain active, um, you know, that provided them with the platform to do so. On the other side of the equation, I think the wealth management um, industry hasn't necessarily kind of kept up in, in catering in a sophisticated way towards, you know, that really sort of top echelon of, you know, business people who both have a lot of experience as well as kind of capital to deploy. And so what we wanted to do was really to try to create a solution for that cohort of investors. So experienced business people who wanted to have an active say in how their capital was deployed. And by solving for that problem, we were able to sort of, um, you know, come up with a, an innovative solution for that, that, that point in the funding cycle that is difficult for institutions to really properly service. So while both Stephen and Paul suggest that there's a shortage of capital in, venture, in, in, in the sort of venture capital market, each kind of, from their perspective, seems to think that the shortage is kind of at a different stage of development. And Opinions, a bit like the opinions of economists, in that everybody's got a view on this. You, we all know, everybody knows, and everybody says there's a shortage of venture capital and venture capital. Everybody, well, not everybody, but there's a vast range of views. People seem to disagree about exactly where that gap is. At the end of the day, EIS, SAIS, and VCTs were all created to fill a funding gap. And it's clear that they've, while they've, they've attracted money, there is still a shortage of, of money in that market. And I think, so my impression, for all the money that's flowed into, in, into private markets in the past few years, private equity has really got the lion's share. The smaller end of venture capital is underserved still. And I think both Paul and Stephen actually make very good points. And there's probably a shortage, as I say, across the whole venture capital market. So I think the bottom line is that it's very hard to pick which sector is actually more attractive. So as a consequence, you probably need to spread your investments by stage. Each will have a different risk return profile. The later stage you have, 
the the better developed the company is, the lower risk it should be, but the lower return you'll usually expect to get as well. If these are in any way efficient, that should be proportionate. Who knows whether things are, uh, are really that efficient at this stage? So I, I think it's safe to say you probably want to spread, and most investors should have exposure to most to, to, to all these areas. How you weight that exposure probably depends on your risk preference. If, if you are actually a more conservative investor, you may feel more comfortable with the sort of Series A, Series B, later stage scale-up investments than you might with seed. If your risk tolerance is higher, then, then seed might be there. Or you might just say, well, actually, I'll do a higher proportion in seed than the more conservative investor. Sector exposure is kind of more difficult when the risk of capital rule came in during 2019, it felt like everything was moving to technology and all we had was technology businesses. And then this phrase, well, buzz phrase, tech-enabled businesses appeared. So fortunately, I think things have improved, even in that short time, in that the world has moved, kind of moved on a bit. And what we're now seeing a lot more of is companies applying technology in sectors and in industries. There's a lot of technology, same way, you know, same way that everybody's got a website now. Not all websites are equal. So website technology is a fairly standard thing, but what companies do that and how they apply it is, is very different. So what we're seeing now is proper businesses, which... Technology is a key part of almost every business, but it's more about what they do with the technology rather than the technology themselves. There's still plenty of technology pure plays, and there's still plenty of innovative stuff. And yeah, I've got deep tech investments, and probably deep tech's a sensible sector to have exposure to as well. But you know, it is possible to get sort of decent sector diversification. The good news for venture capital investors is that the early stage investment, the more idiosyncratic risk will dominate. So pre-seed or seed is all about executing an idea or finding the first five customers or the first 10 quality employees. These are hard for any company at any stage of the economy or any part of the economic cycle. And they're almost independent of the world at large or what other companies are doing. Now, when you get extreme things like a pandemic, that's maybe not so true. But generally speaking, in normal economic cycles, it's always hard going from zero to one. And whether a company succeeds, it's more about that company and its management and what it's doing, not about what's happening in the wider world. So when it comes to diversification, individual companies are largely undercorrelated in terms of their investment performance. As companies progress and grow, this tends to change a bit. A company with established sales may start to find that performance depends more on the economy as a whole or maybe on some broad trends. So, for example, in the pandemic, we saw many home working companies in 2020 all rise together. They all did really well. Anything that's still at work at home. Um, what we've seen in the last few months is quite a few of those discovering that, or investors may be realizing, the pandemic isn't going to last forever. And while there'll be more working from home, there's a lot of people going back to offices and they're not on a one-way one growth path. So those have become a little bit more correlated. So that emphasis on sort of idiosyncratic risk may make it sound like sector diversification doesn't matter, but it really does. One of the other reasons that they might all link is exits. So the last few years have been really exceptional with 
it, what feels like at times a whole world flushed with cash. Corporate buyers, generally speaking, are pretty well off. And, and a monetary policy has been really pretty easy. With inflation rising, we may start to see easy money reduce, but it's far from guaranteed. And central banks seem to be scared of overdoing monetary tightening when economies are still some sort of weak after the pandemic. If we think about five to, years five to 10 years time when exits are likely to occur from our current investments, it's possible that some sectors will be more flush than others. Having too many eggs in an out-of-favour industry, homeworking, for example, could see performance suffer. So sector diversification really still matters. The final thought I want to throw in about diversification when building portfolio is to think about temporal diversification. If I think back through the sort of what's now 50 episodes of the podcast, the, probably the most common concern that people have raised is the high valuations that we have in the market just now. Although it's great for exits, high entry prices on the way in can mean a greater risk of lower sort of return multiples on the way out. And if high valuations don't last on the exit side as well, that could lead to a kind of double whammy as, as returns get impressed. Now, in predicting investment cycles is kind of a fool's errand. I know I've kind of just made one. The tech bubble at the end of the 20th century lasted longer than anyone expected, including me. But at the same time, it did come to a very, very abrupt end. At the moment, we're, we're about midway through the second decade of the current cycle. Some have called it a super cycle because it's lasted so long. Maybe monetary tightening will bring it to an end. I'm not sure how much confidence I have that in statement. It's always dangerous to use the phrase, this time is different. Maybe it is. Who knows? Investors at the same time should still be concerned about this. However, the good news is it's actually a really simple way to kind of manage this, which is just to invest steadily over time. When we discuss our allocation, we seem to talk generally about a general point. So we run our, you know, so if you think back to my white paper, I just kind of ran a portfolio risk variance, uh, risk return analysis. You know, and that was kind of a point in time. So we sort of do this big asset allocation and think about, okay, we reshuffle assets. In practice, for most individual investors, life's not like that. They're earning money over time. They have other investments during. There's a steady flow of decisions to be made. So if a steady amount is being invested each year, and that would probably be the idea where you, you, you have, starting at a young age, invest a little bit of venture capital uh, alongside pensions, then over time you'll spread the investments over high and low valuation periods. This can lead to a formal pound cost averaging, which should give greater economic exposure in the cheaper years. And consequently, you, you should get sort of a fair, your fair share of the best returns. The tax release can lead to your sort of thinking, but the obvious strategy of just spreading over time is obviously best. So in summary, here's my thoughts on diversification. One, get the venture capital's portfolios up to a decent number of investments very quickly. Two, spread over different stages and sectors. Three, invest over time. And when I put it like that, it all sounds like common sense really, doesn't it? So this is a monologue. There's no standard questions this week. I could ask myself things, but that seems a bit pointless. <laughs> Nevertheless, as everyone knows, I like reading my books. So I sort of looked through the books I've read recently, and although I gave some when back in, when I was interviewed about the white paper, I thought about what I've read since that might be interesting. So one that I would perhaps thought 
uh, about throwing out, something called High Stakes No Prisoners by Charles H. Ferguson. Essentially, it's the story of the creation of the front page web design software in the 1990s. So they came up with the idea, they created the company, recruited some high-quality programmers, and, and, and created this, what at the time was quite innovative software, much as I... Uh, when I used it, it seemed a bit passe because I didn't come to it quite late. And eventually, well, not eventually, after a relatively short period of time, it was sold to Microsoft. The book itself is quite densely written, but it really is a genuine warts and all story. Pleasingly, the author, the author does not spare himself. Um, he obviously has a short fuse at times, but the way that all the different incentives kind of worked is really interesting. And I think... The venture capital and, and industry has kind of evolved ways of working um, so that a few of these don't recur regularly. But it's kind of interesting to see why these might appear, because some of them, I think, are still tensions that are underlying. It seems to be out of print, so I had to pick up a second-hand copy, but I found it well worth the effort. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. As I said in introduction, it's a bit of an experiment for us. In the best lean, up, lean startup tradition, we'd like to know what you thought of it. Please email us at inquiries at harvardandgo.com and let us know. Thanks to Tom Britton, Sanjeev Gordon, Stephen Page and Paul Slentis, and indeed all our guests. It was quite hard to sort of think about exactly who I would choose because so many of our guests have been great, but those were the ones that I felt best fitted what we're talking about today. As usual, we'll publish the show notes with links at harvardandgo.com forward slash podcast. If you like the podcast, then please give us a review with lots of stars and awful podcasts. You can also subscribe on all good podcast players and services. Thanks very much for listening and hope to speak to you again in a couple of weeks. <laughs>